0: Each of the songs that we've just sung had a very powerful theme surrounding the cross. Gary selected those songs, and as we spoke about, sang about the way of the cross, and we sang about that old rugged cross. Just to name two of the three songs that we just sung together, don't they remind us very directly and very beautifully about the nature of our life in Christ and what was made available to us at that old rugged cross? It is good for us to be able to be together this Lord's Day morning, and for the next few moments, perhaps a reflection on a lesson I've entitled, The Blame Game. Brother Greg just read a moment ago from Genesis chapter 3. I would encourage you to turn back to that chapter, as we will make a few observations about it in just a few minutes. This opening slide, basically as a very brief introduction, will say the following. Each of us are aware that the Word of God sets before us the requirement of obedience. That is to say, there is something to be done in the way that God has said to do it for the reason that God has said to do it, and He has not left in so many ways that to human decision. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9 remind us, "...though He were a son..." Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And therefore, it is not to us to determine the character of what we shall do. We do what God tells us for the reason He tells us. It is with that in mind that the lesson today is really a major objection that sometimes is raised indirectly in our lives. It has to do with repentance. We all understand repentance is that change in mind that manifests itself in a change of behavior. Doing things differently than what I've done in the past because my mindset is different. I see it differently. I understand what I was doing. In fact, was an affront to God. And He tells me not to do that. And because I love Him, I wish not to do that anymore. Well, to say all of that is to say you and I may well on many occasions find ourselves in positions. We learn that God says something ought not be done. However, there's a major obstacle we have to hurdle. And sometimes it is a great one indeed. It has to do with blame. And that's the reason I entitled the lesson as I did, The Blame Game. How often in life do you and I find ourselves challenged on some point, Perhaps it has to do with the Bible, perhaps it doesn't. But someone challenges us and we excuse our behavior. We justify ourselves in light of what we have done and we will offer some reason as to why we did it that way. And because we think we're justified, we have little interest in changing. Perhaps we have no interest in changing. And therefore, there's a big hurdle to be crossed. This next slide will be one that sets that more clearly before us under the banner of casting blame. We'll try to define that in the course of this slide, but also list a few biblical considerations concerning it. To cast blame, I just mentioned how frequent it might be to be questioned or challenged, or at least some observation made that, well, your life is not as it ought to be. And you and I so often quickly will reply with a justification for why we did what we did, the way we did it, and because we think we're justified in that, we really are not likely to make any changes. Consider a family. That teenage son or daughter was told, You'd be home by 9 o'clock, and 9.15 shows up, the car pulls in the driveway, and Dad and Mom ask, Where were you? The Tra- traffic was slow. I left on time. I got caught by red lights. And one by one, these particulars are mentioned that the person often thinks justifies not doing what Dad and Mom said do. And therefore, I'll cast blame on the red lights. I'll cast blame on the traffic. I'll cast blame. My friend got sick and I had to pull over for him or her to throw up. Any number of things might be offered with the intent of excusing the fact I did not do what dad and mom said I should do. Sometimes that happens at the workplace. Sometimes it happens in the church. The elders may encourage me in one way or another. Oh, but I couldn't do that. This time, you see, my dad needed my help on this occasion. You see, I happened to have stubbed my toe the day before. and I just couldn't help you. And one by one, we cast blame to excuse our behavior. You'll notice about the middle to bottom part of that slide that the word blame can be defined like this. Responsibility for something believed to deserve censure. In other words, somebody thinks that what I did or did not do was deserving of rebuke. And therefore, I will offer some justification that at least in my mind justifies my behavior. And Therefore, I have excused myself. I had reason for doing what I did, despite the fact you don't think it was right. You can easily see, and we've all been there many times in life, the casting of blame. One of the things about that, though, that can be eternally disastrous is if we fail to realize the lesson we're about to study today. How does our God look upon blame? How does he feel about us attempting to cast the blame on somebody else? In Genesis chapter 3, we have arguably a very powerful presentation of the point, And why don't we thus turn to Genesis 3 and let me read the first 19 verses of that chapter. Verses 1 to 19 of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, "'Where art thou?' And he said, "'I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself.' And he said, "'Who told thee that thou wast naked?' Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children." and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, "'Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commended thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread.' till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The blame game. In the dawn of time, you and I observed here that in the blessed Garden of Eden, we noticed that Adam and Eve and God were such that a very interesting development took place. You'll notice on the slide before you, that some of the first observations then will be this. The first one has to do with, remember, blame is this which relates to censure in light of something that's believed to, to be deserving of rebuke. God had given orders to Adam and Eve. They dwelled in the garden, and the first thing is they were to dress and keep it. But not only that, He had said of all the trees in the garden... They had free access with the exception of one. They were not to eat of that tree in the midst of the garden. The tree often called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17 had plainly said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now you and I will understand God didn't mean they physically would die the day that they would partake of it, but rather what He said, the sentence of separation... From me will take place, and spiritual death will ensue. And thus, a moment of decision came. You noticed with me in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, the serpent appeared before Eve. This subtle serpent. And in light of the conversation that ensued, you noticed very quickly that the serpent said something. He said, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The approach of the devil is often as simple as this God's words, in so many ways, tend to be very straightforward and very plain. And very straightforward, and the serpent's goal is to cause some degree of question concerning what God has said. Has God really said that? Are you sure? And today legions are those who labor under this sum. Has God really said you're not supposed to gamble? I wonder how many Christians buy a lotto ticket when they buy their gasoline. I don't know the answer to that. But how many times have, has there been an interest in rethinking supposedly what God has said? Whether it be concerning gambling, whether it be concerning, has God really said that I'm not allowed to remarry? because, you see, I didn't put my wife away for for the cause of fornication? Am I really sure He said that? And if I can begin to at least justify or move in the direction of thinking somehow that that's all right, then I've excused my behavior, and i brought myself into a position, you see, to where I'm not under censure from God anymore." Well, you may notice on that slide as the devil will frequently try to cause us to question what the Bible says or what we have understood that it has taught. May we always be cautious. The rethinking on certain biblical subjects is in many ways a disastrous set of events in our, in our modern day. One by one, congregations who have believed and practiced and followed scriptural evidences for so many decades have suddenly begun to rethink this or that or something else because now we're enlightened. Now we seemingly look at it differently. You and I must realize the gospel hasn't changed. It's the same gospel now that was revealed approximately 2,000 years ago. It was once for all time delivered to the saints in the words of Jude verse 3. And thus, as we come near the close of our first observation, maybe it is a reminder to us that obedience to God is a basic and fundamental requirement. We are only fooling ourselves if we think we can arrive at the day of judgment and offer to God some kind of excuse for why I didn't do what you told me to do. And to think that I can cast the blame on somebody else. God, here's the reason I didn't do that. Here's the reason why I thought this other idea was better. We will be sorely regretful if we find ourselves in that position, for God won't tolerate it, as we're about to see this morning. Lesson number two. Not only are there matters such as these... But one of the things that sometimes is, an, is at least an attempt is to blame God. Did you notice with me verse number 12? You recall Adam and Eve, they had been in the garden and they knew what God's command was. In fact, Eve directly quoted it. She knew exactly what God said. And Adam did too. And yet you notice that after they partook of the forbidden fruit... God came walking in the garden. You know, that's always going to happen. When we sin and mess up, there's always going to be a proverbial appearance of God in the garden. I'm going to have to give an answer for it. And my conscience is going to bother me. And how am I going to answer? In verse 12, you'll notice that God had immediately asked a question. How would you know you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I told you you were not supposed to eat? Censure has taken place. Rebuke is directly in front of Adam. What did he say? What did he do? Verse 12, The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree. God, it's your fault. This woman that you've made, you brought her to me. Did you notice how Adam began with that? The woman you gave to be with me. Sometimes today, we still are rather quick to try and blame God. You made me this way, God, didn't you? I couldn't help it. God, you know me better than anybody, and you know the tendencies you put within me, and I am the way I am because you made me this way to blame God. You and I notice how foolhardy that is. You'll notice on that slide before you, today... The opportunity, or at least the choice, to attempt to blame God is a rather moving one. In the New Testament, several examples of it also are discovered, or at least highlighted. In Luke 23, verse number 43, you recall on the cross, on that occasion, Jesus, of course, was in the midst of being crucified, and there was a thief on each side of Him, And you might remember even there that one of those thieves railed upon him. If you're the Son of God, save thyself and us. And you'll notice this effort, this this attempt to try to cast the blame on somebody else. It's a bit interesting that the one-talent man tried it. You recall him, don't you? the five-talent, the two-talent, and the one-talent man, when the time came for the reckoning concerning the one-talent man, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you reap where you have not sown. And because how hard you are, I had to keep with this which I had. You begin to see the idea to cast the blame on God. You're too rigid. I knew how rigid you are and how strict you are, and so that's the reason I did what I did. You and I have got to think better than that, because one by one you begin to see, and you're at the bottom of that slide as we develop it further. Did God accept Adam's reply? Oh, Adam, I agree that I gave that woman to you, and she is the way she is because I made her that way. And you, hey, you have a good point. God didn't say that. In fact. As we arrive at verse number 17 and following, God will directly place a punishment upon Adam. And He directly highlighted in him the nature of his failure. He was unsuccessful at casting the blame on either God or on the wife. It might be fair to say, as you near the bottom of that slide, that of course, his own son tried this too. In Genesis 4, verse number 9, Cain, of course, had killed Abel by that time, but am I my brother's keeper? Recognizing the fact even then about the fact that he had done what he ought not do and he knew it, and yet to try and say, am I my brother's keeper? One last thing on that slide then will be, God cannot be successfully blamed. He doesn't tempt anybody. Neither can anybody successfully cast the blame on Him for our failures in any way. It is not His fault. Thus, let us put to rest that consideration. And let's notice one more. Because even if one doesn't try to blame God, how often is it that we might try to blame somebody else? And I mentioned it earlier, but let's develop it more thoroughly. Isn't it true that after making mention of the woman that you gave me, she gave to me and I did eat. God, it isn't my fault. This woman, Eve, she's the one that gave me the fruit and I simply was being a dutiful husband to blame others. I mentioned earlier, as you and I can think of a host of examples... In our lives about times that we have not done perhaps what our parents told us to do or our grandparents or even others and we offered reasons that we thought justified it casting the blame on somebody else casting it on some other circumstance and all the while hopefully putting ourselves in a position of removing the blackening of character that otherwise would have been ours And we were thus justified in what we did. Verse 12, "'The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat.'" She's the one that messed up God. She's the one that in fact faltered and failed. She's the one. She even had stated to the serpent what God had said. And she's the one that failed. Now it's true, she gave to me and I did eat, but the principal fault is hers. Can you and I be guilty of this? Sure we can. The casting of the blame on somebody else. You'll notice that Eve tried this too. Look at the next verse. So after God had asked of Adam or at least enjoyed that conversation from him, verse 13, the woman now, or rather the Lord God now said to the woman, "What is this thou hast done?" Oh, one more time, here's another person and let's see how she reacted. Verse 13, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And so the woman, rather than making confession, rather than making observation, yes, God, I have failed this serpent. He's the one that tempted me. He's the one that beguiled me. It's his fault. Somebody else's fault as those ideas, at least, are so common in our behavior. They are constant challenges, aren't they? The challenge that I've asked you to observe about the middle of that slide begins with this one. How often is it in the Word of God? When Aaron and the people, of course, Moses was on the mount and had been there for a long time, and yet the people were getting restless. Aaron apparently held jurisdiction over the making of a golden calf, and when Moses came down from the mountain, Aaron, what is this you've done? Aaron said, you know, Aaron, you know, Moses, what these people are like. They're bent to evil. It's their fault. Aaron tried it. You and I can think of other examples in the Word of God wherein an attempt was made to put the blame on somebody else. In 1 Samuel 15, verses 15 and following, Samuel, of course, addressed Saul and rebuked him regarding his disobedience. And he did that through the nature of God's revelation. And Saul was quick to say, But I have kept the commandment of the God. The people did this. They wanted to offer sacrifice. And isn't that a good thing, Samuel? Cast the blame on somebody else. It's the people's fault. It's Eve's fault. It's the serpent's fault. Anybody but mine. Where do you and I stand in that regard today? Are you and I trying to excuse some behavior we've got? Something that we know that God desires of us and is in our best interest, and yet we try to blame somebody else. It's my children's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's the elder's fault. It's the preacher's fault. Anybody but mine. And yet on the Day of Judgment, we all understand that's going to be a foolish kind of statement. It's going to be wholly ineffective. Perhaps two more things as we close that slide are these. I would ask all of us to reflect on in this instance, God did not accept this blame-casting. In Romans 14, 12, we read, "...so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God." Might we remember that singular pronoun, himself? I'll not give answer for you, neither shall you give answer for me. I'll not give answer for my wife, and she'll not give answer for me. You'll not give answer for your children, and they won't give answer for you. Now, obligations relative to them will be a part of the thing by which you and I shall be judged but their sins and their failures are such that they shall answer for them, and so shall I for mine. I'll not be able to cast the blame on somebody else. No wonder in that regard, Second Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, in that very interesting and powerful passage, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in His body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And so the casting of blame brings us now to perhaps develop this application of it. I began the lesson by reminding us that I thought one valuable lesson for each of us in this could be a danger connected with casting blame. You know, it isn't always just out of saving face. Sometimes this casting blame can have a tremendous consequence on our failure to repent. I say that the following way. At the top of that slide, Adam did not change God's feeling concerning this. When he tried to blame Eve, when he tried to blame God, he was unsuccessful. God didn't say, You got a good point. And when Eve tried to cast the blame on the devil, God didn't say, you have a good point. And in all those other examples we noted again, God never said, you have a good point. We have to take responsibility for our behavior. We live in a society where that has become a rare thing. We want to file lawsuits and blame somebody else. We want to call somebody else to take the fall for what I have done. And the book of God will simply not permit that. We are each free moral agents. We are each those who have the capacity to make our choices and decisions in light of obedience to God or our failure thereof is our choice. Oh, if only our society would better appreciate this. In every walk of life, isn't it so often the case that we want to say someone else is the cause for why I am this way? And sometimes our psychology friends and our sociology friends will encourage that way of thinking. Well, because your parents treated you that way, that's, of course, the way, why you are the way you are. And our homosexual friends will often be such that God made me this way and I can't help it. And we want to say that thus the blame rests with everybody else but me. That kind of thinking, of course, is not only dangerous, it can be eternally damning. As you and I will see on that particular slide, there are some rather powerful passages where God's people sometimes felt this way. And as we develop them somewhat briefly, the point will be clear. In Ezekiel 18.20, God there, through the prophet, encouraged the people with these words, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. If my children fail, if I fail, it's not my children's fault. And if they fail, it isn't my fault directly. Otherwise, you and I appreciate that God The people of God had reached the point where our fathers did this, and their fathers did this, and their fathers did this, and we are justified in doing this. That doesn't justify it. Fathers may have been wrong. Grandpas may have been wrong. Great-grandfathers may have been in error. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And today, you and I realize I can't thus use that line of thinking to excuse my behavior we notice it didn't work with Adam, it didn't work with Eve, it didn't work with the others such as Saul and Aaron. We realize God demands obedience of you and me. You'll note near the bottom of that slide a number of additional examples that paint this challenge for us. If I think that I can cast the blame on somebody else, it will justify my behavior in my mind and I will be very unlikely to change my behavior. I'll be very unlikely to repent. That becomes a problem because God says in Luke 13, 3, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And so today, as you reflect upon with me this issue of casting blame, might we be mindful and very careful to now make sure that we take responsibility for ourselves and our choices and our actions and our behaviors and never think that we can move the blame to somebody else, move it to some other force or cause. It's interesting, isn't it, that as one last thing on that slide is mentioned, it points us to what Paul preached in the city recorded in Acts chapter 17. In that noble place called Athens... In verses 30 and 31, we read, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So if I have justified my behavior, thinking then that I don't need to repent, and then I refuse to repent, I've made myself lost. Today, you see, casting blame is not just a minor problem of of society. It can be very serious. God has made us creatures of responsibility. And one of the things we as parents can do is to help instill in our youngsters and our grandchildren a sense of personal obligation, personal responsibility. You take the blame for what you've done. You don't try to shift it to somebody else. Today, how do you and I stand before God have you and I failed to obey the gospel because we've tried to offer reasons? My daddy did this. My mama did this. My neighbors do this. And I think that's good enough. And that's a good reason for me to be this way. As you and I have learned today, that won't work. That reasoning's not sound. Maybe as a wayward child of God, I've perhaps reached a point in life, well, you know, they do this. My co-workers do this. My schoolmates do this. They seem happy. They seem joyous. What's wrong with it? And maybe over time I've begun to think that way and even behave that way. And you see, I'm trying to cast the blame on them. Well, that's not going to work. Adam and Eve were individually challenged and in fact punished. Eve was told, I'll greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Your husband will rule over you. Verse 16. To Adam, he said, The ground's going to bring forth thorns and thistles, cursed because of what this you've done. And you're going to have to eat bread by the sweat of your face until the day you return to the dust, for out of it you were taken. Today, what about casting blame? I hope we've learned from God's book how serious that can be. And if there would be someone in the audience today, in this assembly, in this grouping, that maybe you've come to realize that you've tried to start acting this way, but you realize now that it's not appropriate. We'd be happy to pray with you. We'd be happy to, in fact, approach the God of heaven on the basis of your repentance and confession, and your way of life can be changed for the better. If you've never become a Christian, why don't you believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? If we could offer prayers of encouragement in any way as well for strength, we'd be delighted to help. The invitation is extended. This is a convenient time, and if we could be of some assistance, won't you come? Well, together we stand and sing the selected song.